Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our postmodern conservative series, we return to our discussion of Pierre Manon, the greatest living French thinker, perhaps the great thinker in right-wing politics in our time, and a great student of political philosophy, a Straussian of a kind, a Catholic of a kind, a European, and nevertheless, a man with a vision that isn't perhaps even adequately suggested by these affiliations. Today, I am joined again by Paul Seaton and Carl Eric Scott, my good friends and the people who brought me this idea in the first place to talk Manon, to do indeed an entire series on this. This is one of the things postmodern conservatism has to contribute to America and to everyone who has the leisure and the interest in looking at politics, at modernity through the eyes of a very elegant scholar who is also full of humanity. He is a, a pleasure to read, just like he is also pleasant to listen to. He is a strangely humble man for one who has accomplished so much. Nor is he, on the other hand, aloof. He is willing to talk about his thinking, its evolution, about his premises, about how he has thought things through to get to this point. And I think that will make him more attractive and more plausible as an interlocutor and a guide to political and intellectual matters. So much for my introduction. Now, Paul, you are a translator of Manon. You have studied his work for so long. I thought since you've guided us through his oeuvre over the previous conversation, and of course we'll do more of that today, you should lead us through a discussion of the metamorphosis of the city, especially since it's uh, closest, I guess, to what we would call his uh, masterwork. Oh, thank you very much, Titus. Uh, always good to talk about Manant and always good to converse and discuss with the two of you. Yeah, I, I too would use you know the French phrase, chef d'oeuvre, I, I would. So now that doesn't mean any number of his other books aren't magisterial, wonderful, penetrating. But yeah, I think uh, this book is his masterwork or his chef d'oeuvre. As is typical for me, when you get a book of weight and density and complexity, I like to start with the obvious and the straightforward and the superficial. <laughs> it's something we can recognize without much controversy, and it can provide a bit of a framework for delving deeper into the meaning of the titles, the articulation of the book as a whole. So I, I really want to talk just about uh, briefly about the title and surprisingly, especially the subtitle. And then I want to just uh, do a quick read of the table of contents. Now, for English reading people, unfortunately, the English translation in the table of contents, the book is divided into three parts, but Manant also divides each of the parts into subparts. And to a considerable extent, that further refinement or that inner articulation of one, two, and three is illuminating and helpful for understanding what he does under the broad part one, part two, part three topic. So a title, subtitle, and then uh, just a little fuller reading and commentary on the table of contents itself. Last time we started with a book that came out in 2010, seeing things politically, and that's his intellectual and somewhat personal, but basically intellectual autobiography. But it was done in the form of conversations with a former student of his and someone who knew his work intimately well. And it's appropriate then that we turn to Metamorphoses of the City because that book too came out in 2010. 
So the same year we had this nice retrospect of Manant's beginnings in development, we did have this culmination or this chef d'oeuvre. So it fits in nicely. And I do think it kind of presages or inaugurates then a third phase. And then Manant is currently in a fourth phase of his thinking. Title, Metamorphoses of the City. In it, it intimates the chief term and concept that'll structure the work, metamorphoses of the inner word, the Greek word morphe. It means shape. Sometimes it's translated as form. If you're Aristotle, you want to distinguish the two. But in this case, Menant is intimating, uh, I'm going to start with the city, the Greek polis, and then I'm going to look at Western and European development in terms of the metamorphoses or the changes in forms of political organization that Western and European humanity have undertaken, undergone, or have left behind and are wandering in the uh, humanitarian desert today. So it's going to start with uh, the city and then track Western and European political development in the light of the central notion political form. You know, at some point, you're going to say, what's a political form at some point, and uh, it will need to be distinguished from political regime. And so Manant's political philosophy, it has a bunch of essential categories, but two of its foci are political life is constituted by and combines a political form and a political regime. And the classics were really good at regime analysis, but after the experience of post-Christian Europe, there's a need to reflect more on the hosts of the various regimes that humanity has erected. And the three main regimes will be the city, the empire, and then uh, the nation in its European form. The subtitle, On the Western Dynamic, Dynamique. And 1994, Manat wrote two retrospective pieces that kind of reviewed his work to date. And one of them appeared in response to a couple of reviews of his book, The City of Man, that came out earlier in 94. And I'm going to read you a passage from one of those two retrospects called On Historical Causality, de la causalité historique. And in it, Menant describes uh, his aim, his project, and himself in that first period. And frankly, what we're going to see is he's always been focused on dynamics. But in his first phase, he focused on the dynamics that led to modern liberalism, to the modern nation, modern state, but primarily to modern liberalism. And that required him to go back to the collapse of Rome, the rubble of Rome, the need for Europeans to reorganize their life in the midst of a church that like to boss them around in God's name. And then what we're going to see is metamorphosis. He broadened his perspective and looked at the dynamics of the entirety of Western Civ. So it wasn't just modernity. Now it's all of Western civilization. But he still focused on these things through the prism of what he's he struck by how active Western Civ, how active the modern project and modern political history have been, were, less so are. It's 
been struck by just how dynamic they are. And he's trying to understand what's the cause of the dynamism of modernity and the dynamism of Western civil art. So that's been his focus through both phases. And just with a little broader context, he's also been struck by the fact, well, let's say since 93, that European dynamism has petered out, petered out, petered out, petered out. As the most recent episode of European and Western dynamism, he's struck by how impotent, unadventuresome, self-absorbed, lack of confidence European human beings are. And give an analysis of how that came. But here's what he said in 96. I thus ask myself about this process that is our modern development. I seek, and then he italicizes this, I seek the cause of a movement. In this sense, I am first of all as an historian, and one might suggest a physicist who is looking for, quote, a dynamic formula or a formula of dynamism. Okay, I'll stop there. So Manant is still looking at movement that is rooted in human beings who trust their powers, have projects, who are pursuing enormous goals. And he just wants to understand the cause or the source of that dynamism, but also saying, you know, what the hell happened? <laughs> now that we go. And then, okay, I'm, Frank, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop there just in terms of title and subtitle as just an initial statement. It kind of what it's done is it said that this book has for its subject matter, Western Civ, and it starts with the city, this site of dynamic human action that finally rent itself internally and externally with the Peloponnesian Wars, but then generated so much psychic energy and such a model of what human beings could do that subsequent members of the West and then of Europe said, wow, we can do something analogous, maybe even greater, and with the help of God or uh, with the benefit of hindsight in terms of uh, what had led to the self-destruction of the Greek city-state. So he's looking at Western Civ, and he's just trying to understand really the cause of its dynamic action. And for him, the best thing to focus on is this notion of political form, city, empire, nation, and connected with different types of regimes that further tighten the form that human beings are trying to be dynamic in and with. Very good, Paul. I mean, I really like the emphasis on the dynamism that does come out in all kinds of ways. For, you know, readers kind of new to Monat, I would just also sort of underline, you know, kind of just the fundamentalness of this a notion of political form. I think you know Paul at one point may have switched around regime and form in his in his formulation, but I mean just to be perfectly clear, I mean the key political forms are the Paul did say this: the empire, the city, and the nation. And Manat is aware that there's other ones. The tribe is another big one. He at times plays around with the idea of a band or a tribal kingdom. That's an example of the, what, what became the Macedonian Empire. And if you want kind of the elementary level articulation of this, I mean, this was an idea that Manat was working on for a while. 
obviously in part it's a response to what in the world is this European project, this European Union? Is, is it a confederation? Is it a nation? Is it a, uh, an empire? And the book to go to would be one called Democracy Without Nations. And this is translated by our friend Paul and gives you one of his earliest essays on it. And it sort of takes you through, you might say the ABCs of his theory of political forms, particularly developing how to think about the origin of the nation due to certain medieval conflicts between the claims of empire, the church, and the Italian city-states. But this book, Metamorphoses of the City, is sort of, as Paul said, it's, it's getting much more deep at every level. And there's a, a certain depth, particularly with thinking about the origin of the polis, which of course is a basic political problem. I mean, this is where Aristotle starts. You know, what do we make of the city and, and what do we make of it correlating in some way to Greek experience on one hand, but to human nature, universal on the other. So those are just a few guidelines for thinking about this very rich book. I would also just say this book is interesting in the way that it involves a lot of jumping back and forth between ancient times and modern you know, developments or modern political philosophy. So it's extremely rich. It feels like a coming together of the Knots thinking about political form and his earlier thinking about the kind of you know, story of political philosophy becoming the story of modern political philosophy. So those are just some general guidelines I'd have for, for approaching this particular book. Yeah, anybody who picks it up, especially for the first time, is going to be struck by any number of things. But one uh, way it'll be put is the first time readers can say, this is very eclectic. He's read widely and he stitches it together. I think that's too weak a term. One time, uh, Manon says, I, he says, I'm not even interdisciplinary. I'm not even that. He says, I just have a topic and whatever I read that I think sheds light on my topic, I bring it in. So that doesn't, I mean, that doesn't mean, what it means is in a certain sense, he's not systematic. That does not mean that how something fits in isn't very well thought out. But initially it looks like, well, I want to talk about the origins of the Greek city, so I'll go back to Homer. Now that kind of sort of makes sense, except people will say, but that wasn't quite the city. And Manat says, that's true. That wasn't quite the city, that all the elements that became the city and the problem that the city addressed is there. So he'll bring in Homer and you say, yeah, that makes sense. And you'll say, I'm not quite sure how that's going to work. And you say, you're right. And then he'll show you how this is the poetic city before the real city, precisely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you could, you could say that the main, so there's a lot of jumping back and forth, a lot of eclecticism, but there is kind of a main movement, right? There's, a, there's an introduction and then you get into Homer and the ancient situation and a lot of discussion of the polis, a lot of that centers around Aristotle, um, but at a certain point, he suddenly jumps back to considering Vico and Rousseau, but then you move forward and, and maybe the center of the book is kind of what in the world is Rome? Rome is sort of this unique kind of polis that becomes, well, what does it become? Is a big kind of question. And so that leads naturally into studies of, well, there's some mention of Machiavelli along the way, but Cicero in particular is studied and, and some of the ways in which 
a modern thinker that isn't considered so often, uh, Montaigne is kind of presented as someone who takes up some of the questions that Cicero left hanging there. And then the other thinker, this, this move is quite natural, is Augustine, City of God. So you get this sort of transition from the Greek polis to Rome, some thinking about Rome by Roman thinkers, and then later thinkers, and then the kind of the Christian um, Augustinian analysis slash criticism of Rome um, in the city of God. So that's the broad movement as I would describe it. But yeah, just add on to that as you will. I'll just add part three has three words in the title, empire, church, nation. So as it were, after Rome, he continues the story with much more focus now on Europe. Let's see, I, I personally tend to put Greece and Rome under the broad category of Western Civ. And yet when the church comes, I do think the beginnings or the first shoots of Europe show up, but Europe is gonna be a collapsed Rome, a ascendant church, and then a problem for you know former Romans, dawning Europeans, how do we rebuild our political life from the rubble, but now confronted not just with external empires or the internal move to empire, but with a supernatural empire, the church. So the third part is the empire, but then the church and the nation. So he's trying to complete the full sweep of Western Civ and European history, frankly, in its fundamental articulations, political form, political regime, to which I do want to add a third constant in his analysis. And you, you mentioned Montaigne, you know, in a thought that you have in Plato, in a thought that you have in Aristotle, in a thought that you have in Leo Strauss with his book, The City and Man, Menard does think that a certain type of human person, a certain uh, orientation of the soul is both shaped by and gives rise to a particular political form. So he does political form. It's not simply or even primarily external, but you know it has things like boundaries. It has us versus them. But he's also looking at the psychology of the people who inhabit it. So looking at the polis, it's going to start out with masters and slaves. <laughs> and then somehow or another, those get transformed into oligarchs and democrats so i would add political form political regime and human type are all foci and threaded together as he goes through all of these different forms and kind of stages of western and european development and you're right he just is constantly comparing contrasting soul types you know how did the homeric hero confront death versus how does the Hobbesian bourgeois confront death? And, you know, on one hand, we're attracted to the Homeric hero, but it turns out that Homer is fully aware that there's a problem in the heroic confrontation of death and making it the defining feature of life and the central thing to deal with. On the other hand, the Hobbesian thing, you know, leave, leaves out an awful lot of uh, human nature and politics and the human soul. Yeah, would you, I'm just sort of grasping for, you know, handholds for the reader new to the metamorphoses of the city book in terms of getting a hold of it. I mean, would you agree with this, Paul? It seems that the a, a lot of political philosophy, you might say, you know, 75% of political philosophy is considered at some point or another in this book, it feels like. I mean, there, suddenly there's a discussion of Marx, 
Vico, et cetera, et cetera. But it does seem to me that the books that he's most dialoguing with are, you know, Homer's Iliad, Aristotle's Politics, the two works by Cicero, but especially De Republica, Augustine's City of God. I'm surely missing something, but those seem to be the big ones to me that he's grappling with, spending the most time on. I, I guess maybe Montaigne should be in there as well. And Rousseau. Um, Rousseau. Rousseau pops up a lot, and he pops up in interesting places, and particularly the social contract book. And Manon has a wonderful way of, I'll call it, disciplining Rousseau. He, can, he has some nice moments where he talks about Rousseau, he's trying to make his point here by shouting, <laughs> by being dramatic. And, and Manon has a nice way of showing us how you could interpret the same truths that Rousseau is looking at in a much more natural slash moderate way. Anyway. Yeah, this, that, that, again, and Montesquieu is also present throughout yeah, the book. in there as well. Yeah, uh, th this does go back to, I think, the an initial impression of the first-time reader is wide-ranging reading or eclecticism stitched together by something like the genius of the author, but it's not that, or it's infinitely more than that. So uh, I want to say a few things about Menantes reader. He enlists these famous authors insofar as they engage with and shed light on the problems that he's dealing with. You know, and oftentimes there's tremendous overlap between the intention of the author and the nonce intention of tracking Western civ. But, you know, Aristotle brought to bear on contemporary democracy. That's something that Aristotle couldn't do. And I, I say that to you, Carl, knowing your interest. So he brings these political philosophers in. I'm going to say not for their own sake, but I'll come back but in order insofar as they engage with or help him deal with the problem. And now he's been doing that forever. Early on, Titus said uh, he's a Catholic, he's a Straussian, although those don't quite capture him. I think the initial difference between him and Strauss in reading modern philosophy was Strauss read modern philosophy to find out what the fate of philosophy was or reason. Manat, he took that for granted, frankly, and he wanted to know the light that the modern philosophers shed on our moral and political life for the past three centuries. So Manant learned how to read from Strauss, but he read the modern philosophers with a different intentionality, a different focus. And my goodness, he highlighted a lot of stuff in Hobbes and Rousseau and Montesquieu that weren't highlighted in the Strauss you know, brilliant reading stuff. So it wasn't just moving from philosophy to politics, but there, I think there was new light shed on and drawn from those modern philosophy texts of his. And then I do think his use of modern philosophy is at the service of his concerns, his problems, the phenomena as he thinks that they show up most immediately and naturally. But when he does his readings, you know, at the sake of understanding the origin of political life. When he does his readings, his readings are brilliant. My God, the guy can read. My God, he pays attention to the key word in that Rousseau passage that just, you know, unlocks Rousseau, but it also allows Rousseau to make his contribution to how you move from pre-political to political. There's a lot going on in Manant's employment of the text of the modern philosophers, and I've tried to articulate some of the elements and some of the dynamics of it, but he's the best quoter I've ever read. And that's a 
talent and one could bring in that passage from Montesquieu to Bayer here moves the argument along now in a way that another passage just couldn't or wouldn't do as well. So again, it looks eclectic, it looks stitched together, but my goodness, it's simply a composer conducting his score. Yeah, and let me just quickly, because this will interest some of our readers I know, one of his most interesting kind of moments of interpretation is he's got, he brings in the Strauss argument about Caesarism from the On Tyranny book and just really masterfully considers its strengths and weaknesses and lines it up with the different ways in which Montesquieu on one hand and um, Aristotle on the other deal with monarchy. That's like a small example of what we're talking about. But of course, that's an incredibly rich and important topic. So, I, I mean, all I'm saying here is there's an authoritative and important vital discussion of the topic of Caesarism in this book, but that's not the point of this book. It's one little thing that, that happens in the course of Manon's broader inquiry, which has a progression. He's proceeding topic by topic, and that's when the various thinkers at different points are woven in. Yeah, I'm in agreement with this and listening to you too. I've been trying to think through why does the book progress the way it does and what the intention is. I'm not uh, saying I can do justice to your observations, but perhaps I can add something that is largely commensurable. Metamorphosis of the city starts by going to the ancients. This uh, will remind Straussians of something like the motion of perhaps the city and man, which we've already mentioned, which starts with Aristotle and moves backwards to Cididas, to a kind of philosophy that simply deals with political life, a sort of philosophical thinking where philosophy as a concern or as a word never shows up. And Manon seems to be doing that in the beginning. He's, he starts with modern concerns, with the failures of modern political science, with its varieties as well, what it means for us to lose our ability to be scientific, to simply become ideologues of democracy, and therefore flatterers, but not friends of democracy. Or on the other hand, what it means that we can no longer be political. We try to be scientific in such a way that we forget that we really are human beings. And these problems send him back from Montesquieu and Rousseau and their epigones back to antiquity and the ancient city, and indeed back before the ancient city to Homer, to why would the city come into being in the first place? Why was it not enough, as you both of you have suggested, to be a Homeric hero? Throughout, he seems to have very modern concerns on his mind when he starts discussing Homer. He does not start from expertise or his own opinion. He starts from Simone Weil and a, a mm. certain moralistic pacifism. It has impressive insights, but it is still moralistic pacifism. And from the beginning, he says this is a very partial account of Homer. And partly it's partial because it is too terrified by 20th century experience. He is everywhere learned, astute, but also gentle. He he's always enters into the intentions of these authors. And nevertheless, as you both have said, he, he's driving towards a point. He has something on his mind that he also wants to put on our minds. He treats us like he treats his writers, he quotes. He knows that we suffer from this terrible pacifism that has neither given us peace nor peace of mind. So you know, the question of war must loom very large. His initial presentation of the ancient city is too tied up with war. It's a bit shocking even, though he keeps mentioning the class struggle and exterior warfare. 
what it means for the city to tell you what is the world to you, enemy territory. You don't go there except armed. These kinds of statements is not what you would expect, of course, from an intellectual, first of all. But secondly, it's not uh, the, the presentation of the Greek police we would like. But it seems to be a necessary corrective to this pacifism. And so he seems to be trying to pull people back into a perspective that he asserts and then tries to argue is the naturally political perspective. We are not wrong to care about Western civilization. We're not prejudiced or cowardly in sticking to the old famous authors. They really were right to obsess over the experience of the city, what it means for people to do together what the Homeric hero tried to do alone in some sense, that is to claim that he's self-standing that he is autonomous, that he is complete by himself, to be himself by himself, to use a, a philosophical uh, malapropism. And from there on, the movement transforms. As you say, he, he somehow takes in a lot of the great authors. He goes through the great uh, movements of political history. And then, as uh, Paul has suggested, he, he wants to show you how Europe became Europe in the first place. And that's a very different kind of movement in Straussian terms. It would be much more like natural right in history. Just assume certain things and move on from Aristotle to these eventually modern conceptions of right and politics. And it's remarkable to see both done at once or in one long, long work that's, to some extent, it's so well written that it even conceals this. But I think there's a great distinction between these two movements. And I, I don't have, uh, I'm sorry to say, much to offer on how they are put together, except that, as you said, Carl, Rome is, is much more important in this book than you would think at all if you just browsed, I don't know, the index of authors or the, uh, the number of topics and so on and so forth. It, it looms much larger. And of course, that is true to Europe. Rome was of terrible importance to Europe in many ways, politically and intellectually, even in modern times. But what does that mean? How does that uh, really hang together in a thoughtful account? Une histoire raisonnée. Well, that's much harder to say, and I'm not sure I can do justice to that. These two motions, I think, have a lot to do with what Paul was saying. Manon, at some point, even does think of himself as a physicist. Early on in the book, he says, what is it to be natural to have the principle of motion within oneself? That is what it means to be natural. This, of course, does point to Aristotle's physics and the question of dynamics that is in the subtitle, as Paul astutely pointed us towards this. Without understanding this movement, we cannot understand ourselves. And perhaps, again, to be scientific without political, being political is to deny that this movement is real. To be political without being scientific, as the theorists of democracy are in our times, is to assert the movement without thinking about it at all on the assumption that there can be no perspective exterior to it, i.e. to believe that we are fated. Democracy is destiny and there's no use even thinking about what it is. Manon seems to be saying that this prejudice is too strong to get rid of but it must be as much as possible fought for the sake of clarity, if nothing else, to understand what our democracy really is, how democratic are we really, to what extent are we still capable of being scientific about the matter, that is to say, thinking through clearly what we believe about being human and justice. Titus, what is the, the prejudice that you just mentioned? Could you just clarify that? This is from, of course, the early section of chapter one. He even mentions John Rawls by name, 
to know what John Rawls meant to liberalism 50 years ago and for a while is to despise liberalism utterly. And uh, I say that uh, without much satisfaction because liberalism used to be a pretty great thing, but for something that ended up this way, it's just appalling. And he points out through this example, of course, Manan is a more elegant and more gentle man than I am, but through this example, he points out that thinking has turned into nothing but ideology. It is no longer possible for people to even ask what it is to be democratic. It is only a contest of how to flatter this democratic prejudice. As Paul has also said very well, you can't look at our situation without realizing that somehow we've lost our capacity, we've lost our dynamics. We are in decadence. To understand decadence for what it is, is to understand it's a bad thing. And it would seem that people who cannot face this decadence are no longer real Democrats. They are decayed Democrats, they are many prejudiced Democrats, people who take the decadence of democracy for the purposes of democracy, because it has ended up that way. Now, this is known as the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. And aside from considering how parochial or self-interested it is, people are unhappy in our times. Manan knows this, and he addresses himself to such people who are intelligent but unhappy and are in search of an education. And of course, he cannot help but point out at various points who the kinds of people are who are nothing but prejudiced, that is to say, but they are not looking for an education and they are, if anything, looking to prevent anybody from getting an education as to politics and democracy. You really did. I was explicitly, and uh, Carl chimed in, you know, trying to just do a superficial orientation. And then you now we're pointing out to the depths. We are very good. I kind of heard three possible ways we could go in what you said. Uh, and I'll just say them and then we can jump in on them however you want to. There is one part of the text which presents the text as a whole. That's the introduction. So that's one text we could turn to, you know, get into a little bit. And it gives us something like the shape and the movement of the argument of the book as a whole. So that would be worth studying. Second of all, it is the case that Pierre in this book is in search of knowledge or as he says in good French, science, he wants some systematic understanding. Now, of what? Well, frankly, I'm going to say the dynamic course of Western Civ, the nature of Europe, what went wrong and what we need to do forward. But he, he is in search of knowledge. And I think his early discussions of here are our available disposable political sciences, and he invidiously contrasts them with their modern predecessors, <laughs> you know, Rawls ignoring the state of nature in the original position and, you know, other people. Uh, so we could talk about the science he's in search of, to coin a term or a phrase. And then I do think we, we haven't yet mentioned, well, no, uh, Carl mentioned it, but a hundred pages of this book are devoted to Augustine's City of God. And so we do have to at least note that and ask what's his view of that grand book and what role does this acute exegesis play again in this overarching thing which is try to understand the dynamic of western and especially european movement and civilization so introduction science maybe the city of god and i'm, I'm completely open or indifferent to doing one or the other 
I think perhaps we should talk about Augustine since this is likeliest to be the most exotic topic. And certainly it's something that's puzzled me a lot. The various authors in this book, Augustine is the one I know least well and am most interested in accordingly. Yeah, earlier I mentioned that in 92, 94, Manon wrote two retrospects of his work today. So, you know, 20 years worth of thinking. And at the end of the 1992 piece called The Truth, perhaps, he said, Unlike Strauss, who just does nature and history or historicism, I do nature, history, and then, if not grace, the institution that claimed to speak in the name of grace, the church. So for him to understand the Western dynamism, modern or pre-modern, you have to have a triangle and not just uh, binary categories. And so somewhat enigmatically or promissorially, he said, I've just indicated, I think you need to have this triangle of Aristotle, Augustine, and Machiavelli. Just use three names, you know, the articulator of ancient politics, the inaugurator of modern, and then the critic of ancient and the opponent of modern politics, Augustine. So Augustine has always been on his mind. And that's one of the interesting things about reading him is he'll make what appears to be an off-the-cuff remark in one book, and then six or seven years later, 20 years later, you get a full-blown development of that off-the-cuff remark. I'll just say real quick, in uh, Intellectual History of Liberalism, in a footnote in the Montesquieu chapter, he said, Montesquieu wanted to establish the authority of history, but he himself didn't yet experience, whereas the French liberals after the French Revolution, they experienced the movement of history. But the phrase is the authority of history, then the first chapter of the 94 book, City of Man, first chapter is entitled The Authority of History. So he's, uh, he's got these thoughts there and he's very disciplined. He doesn't bring out of here down to the page, but what he needs for the topic and the argument he's doing here. And so I do think that shows discipline and focus on his part. It also means that there are tons of collateral discussions Carl, you run up Democracy Without Nations, so that I do happen to think that the treatment of the nation in metamorphoses, I want to say that it's probably his least developed treatment of the nation. And so I, it would not be the treatment of the nation that I would recommend first or only to people who are interested in the on the nation. So I, I just want to say it's a great book. It's a chef d'oeuvre, but it's disciplined and you don't get every major thing he wants to say about something here if it doesn't fit into what he wants to pursue in doing the origin and then the two natures or the nature and then the what's above the political okay genesis the nature principle of movement and then what's above the city according to the ancients so augustine's been on his mind forever uh, his treatment of augustine city of god in this book is divided into two parts although he does a couple of chapters at the beginning of the third part. So the first part of his treatment of Augustine is called the Critique of Paganism. And then the second one's simply entitled The Two Cities. And, you know, that rings true or, yeah, you know, first of all, you critique Rome in all of its aspects, psychological, all of its aspects. Then you look at, you broaden out to the two cities. Now, remember, Rome is not one of the two cities. The city of man is not Rome, or Rome is not exhaustively or identified as Rome is not the city of man. So we look at a Christian critique 
of Rome, but that's undertaken in the light of criteria that Roman intellectuals themselves acknowledged. So it's a great, this is one of the first great deconstructions or subversion texts where Augustine just says, you know, have you read Sallust or have you read Livy? <laughs> yeah. Well, if you do, you're going to see he thinks things are as bad as I'm saying, maybe even worse. Okay. And then the two cities, again, that broadens Manant's focus, as it were, away from pagan Rome to, you know, starts with the fallen angels and then, you know, goes through one of the first world histories, the two cities, the fallen angels and Adam and Eve, and then Cain and so forth. Now I'll just say Manant, his most political purpose in discussing the city of man is to say in a dialogue, in an honest dialogue, the church did have a right to critique or to challenge the Roman Empire. That's a legitimate thing, even on the human level. But insofar as the church won, either dialectically or otherwise, the church then posed a huge problem to the post-Roman peoples and the post-Roman order of politics. And it's right there where Europe is being born with the church in the midst of a collapsed Roman Empire, and then human beings who naturally want to organize their common life, and they've got this towering institution over them, wanting to govern them, but also telling them, God gave you freedom, so go ahead and put things in common, and then we'll guide it or bless it or not. That's kind of a sketch of those two chapters of the second part. Yeah, I mean... I guess earlier I said that going to Augustine feels very natural. And I think that's because he's earlier sort of established very some ways in which Rome is weird and, and not necessarily the most obvious ways. I mean, the most obvious way I think comes up earlier that Rome is the, you could say, the polis that somehow managed to expand out of its bounds. So it, it did what, you know, the Athenian Empire could not do. And, you know, it looks to be a universal society that's going to function kind of as a city. So if you've read previous Manant or if you read other authors on Rome, this is, this is not a, a total surprise to you. But it is very fascinating the way he brings out, Rome sort of brings us into the universal in kind of a certain tension with the old Greek polis that you would think would be a function of Christianity coming, or you would think would be a function of modern political philosophy, but he shows that it's already sort of there, that there's this sort of, he calls it the Ciceronian moment, and he says it goes from, well, I guess Cicero's time up to the 1700s and, and the American founding and so forth. And so partly what he's saying there is there's this long moment, and it happens to coincide with demise of the Republican government, the kind of long Augustan interlude between, you know, classical Republicanism and, and American and European Republicanism. And he's sort of saying that there's something about the way Cicero is approaching problems that is indeterminate. And I guess the way to put it is that the Greek polis really tended to link things to a solid conception of what you know, the common thing was, this is, of course, the common thing is, is coming from the Cicero's discussion of the very term in Latin, 
kind of a dual term, actually, Respublica, which Biden, strangely enough, quoted in his inaugural. And Manat brings out how there's ways in which the thinking of the, the Greeks on this was much more clear. And with Cicero, you, you sort of, I mean, this comes out, I'm having a hard time articulating this, but it comes out particularly vividly in the discussion of the example of Cato. And so, I mean, I think Manant is saying that the Greek discussion of Cato would be kind of along the lines of this famous tidbit that Strauss, Leo Strauss gave us in Natural Right and History, where he sort of suggests that Cato's suicide was a good political act because it's kind of a last stand that might inspire others. But when Cicero discusses Cato's suicide, Manat points out he doesn't really focus on any kind of political reasoning. He focuses in on this being unique to Cato's personality, his individuality. And then he links that up with later reflections on this by Montaigne, who's obviously very interested in the primacy of the individual. We don't expect that in Cicero, but it, it, we think Cicero is going to be a standard classical political philosopher, but it's there. The other thing that's there in the De Republica book is there's an awful lot of consideration, sympathetic consideration of monarchy. We wouldn't think that. We think Cicero's, you know, Mr. Anti-Caesar, et cetera, but it's there. I think it strikes any reader of De Republica if they're careful but Manat really brings it out. So some of these threads are picked up in Augustine's discussion in City of God. He, he has his own theory, which Manat does not entirely endorse of why Cato commits suicide. So I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but there's a way in which Manat really ties these texts together. And he shows how a certain approaches to ethics and certain approaches to thinking about individual choices, the choices of Cato the Younger, as we've mentioned, but we can also mention Lucretia with her suicide or this fellow Regulus who makes a sacrificial move for Rome. Manat makes a great deal of how different thinkers, Augustine on one hand, Montaigne on the other hand, Cicero on the other, react to these individual decisions. So I don't know, Paul, what do, you, what do you think about what I've laid out there? Lots and lots and lots and lots of wonderful stuff. You know, you kind of, as it were, presented the, not status quo ante, but the Roma quo ante of the city of God, uh, fine. And I'll probably say a few words about the Ciceronian moment. Uh, but you, I think you introduce a new word and a very important word for Vinant at a certain point in Western slash dawning European development or history, form was gone and no. determinacy reigned, or disorder was the order. And so that'll be the situation that Cicero is addressing. And he had to come up with some new thoughts, that is the classical categories of Plato and Aristotle were no longer adequate to, first of all, the entire history of Rome from Etruscan satrapy to mistress of the world. So just the movement and the development of Rome from city to empire transcended uh, Greek categories. But then where were you left? Well, you had the memory of the Republic. You had a few Republicans. You had Caesar and the future was opaque, <laughs> but it, it wasn't going to be Republican. But Pierre wants to do is he says, what does the Republican soul do in this situation? So this goes back to our 
regime, form, soul type structure. He has to bring in Cato, Cicero, and Caesar precisely because the ambiguity of the situation gave rise to ambiguity of responses or soul types. And that makes perfect sense. To that, I have to add, he's setting up what he thinks is the condition that the modern philosophers found themselves in and addressed. And the situation or the condition the modern philosophers found themselves in had many elements. But one is there was an embarrassment of models. There was an embarrassment of advocates for this regime or that regime, classical regime. And there was no principled way, because history showed that and the debate showed that, there's no principled way to adjudicate between Caesar and Cato, for example. And so the modern philosophers said, we've got to get out from under that eternal, interminable dispute or dialectic, this plethora of authoritative words and this plethora of ka-eminent or human types. And so Machiavelli, but especially Hobbes, are going to try to articulate a radically new path for European man that will escape the discord and the discoursee of Western and European civ to that point. So two points. Not too much to add there, although there's a very rich kind of way in which Manat shows there's kind of like a, a, a deep desire for certainty and determinacy boundaries in Hobbes that even going back to Machiavelli, so many things are kind of in flux in terms of what your choices will be. And Hobbes, if nothing else, we can sympathize with the way in which he reflects, I think what Manon calls this modern desire for some just bottom line rules in the midst of all the modern flux of ideas and and the commerce that's coming on the horizon and the new science. So I, I felt that was a, a slightly new idea, at least for me on Hobbes, and it was quite helpful. But I mean, Manat's very good in showing that this confusion, this, this confusion of discourses, it, it precedes both the modern moment and the Christian moment. It goes back to something that's going on with Rome, something that's going on with the way the Greek city-states had been you know, essentially eliminated, remained irrelevant by the Hellenistic kingdoms. Ever since then, in a way, what he's saying is there's been this kind of grasping around for models of politics, also models, as you mentioned, for ethical judgment. You brought up the phrase, the Ciceronian moment that lasted from the first century AD through the 17th, <laughs> quite a long time. I think I have two comments. As Manat reads, Cicero, especially the uh, De Re Publica, he sees an awful lot of specifically modern teachings. And he's very struck by that. And I'll just give two examples. It turns out that the purpose of government or political life is to uh, protect individual property. And he quotes the phrase, so property protection is the purpose of the Res Publica in Cicero's reconceptualization trying to address this new fluid situation. So property, you know, you know, thank you, Locke. Thank you, Cicero. And then you mentioned this one earlier, you know, the classics, you know, they talked about nature and human nature and, you know, the ethical goal of human beings were to fulfill their common human nature, even though you'd have different endowments, but a common human nature was the common measure to measure agents and political regimes. Well, Cicero, he both accepted human nature as a common measure, but he also recognized something, what he, you said, 
the individual nature of a person. And that is the new norm that Cicero applied or put forth to you know, his readers and to subsequent thinkers. You need to be more respectful of the individuality of individuals. Now, that's clearly a precursor or a predicate or something, you know, it's probably Christianity too, but that's clearly a predecessor, a precursor of modern individualism. And uh, I can hear Manon saying, and it did not come from theological ontology. He doesn't like understanding politics in terms of nominalism or theological disputes or debates. So Cicero, he used with great mastery the classical categories of politia or regime, soul, nature, common good, but both Roman history and the Roman circumstance compelled him to think outside that box, which makes him more of an interesting thinker than a lot of classicists, perhaps, although uh, you all of us, I think, have read Tom West's famous article that came out in the 80s that just showed how insightful and distinctive uh, Cicero really, really was. So Pierre recognizing that wasn't news news to me, how he developed it was. But fundamentally for Cicero, the old Republican regime is clearly dead. And the political form of the empire, especially in its Roman version, that's really nebulous or vague. And you know, you can read uh, Paul Cantor's Shakespeare's Rome and Romans to get a sense of that. And so the two fundamental things that make a political order form and especially regime were conspicuous by their vagueness or their evaporating character. And as it were anachronistically, he didn't see that what you needed is a nation that's between the city and between the empire, and it's still a fit habitation for citizens and men. So the great period, Menas just kind of gone back now to Cicero, whereas in uh, the first period in intellectual history of liberalism, he went back to, I'd say, kind of the fourth and fifth century AD. So he's deepening his understanding of the problem of Rome and then the Roman context for subsequent developments. Yeah, I mean, just to, a little bit more on the Cicero stuff. I mean, I think one fruitful way is to think, why doesn't Cicero arrive at the idea of, well, the extended republic? I mean, he, he didn't have, and this would be Manant's main thing, he didn't have the form of the nation before him in any way. He did not have the European monarchical use of representation in various forms before him. And so maybe this made it impossible. I mean, I will just report, for example, that among classicists, there's this interesting debate on the late Roman Republic. Was it a democracy or not? And there's some like Fergus Millar who want to say, well, look, they had millions of people voting. You know, I don't know if you want to be too picky about how you define democracy, but, and then you've got others, you know, like Paul Cartledge who are like, no, 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 democracy can only be like what they had with in the Greek polis situation or, or early Rome, if you want to use a Roman example. So uh, our own contemporary classicists recognize this, the indeterminacy, the confusion of this period we're talking about. I don't know if Titus wanted to get in here with anything, but I'd be curious, Paul, to see how you think about him drawing out these issues with Rome and Cicero the way that Augustine does it. So Augustine in some ways seems to complete certain thoughts about Rome that he's had. And I'm, I don't yet really have a clear bead on, on what Manant is 
what, what he's coming to conclusion to with, with, with Augustine there. Well, to address the point we, as we're just made with Cicero, that he didn't see a way out or forward, Augustine does not give Rome a way out or forward. He wants Rome to convert, but he's not that interested in political form or regime. So I'd say that's from the point of view of development of political forms. Augustine articulates the totally unexpected political form, which is very much in this world, but claims not to be from it or about it, <laughs> the church. So uh, you've got the series of you know three major political forms. Then you got the church, which he calls a political form in part because it's a governing body, in part because Augustine says it embodies the city of God and it does battle with the city of man. So Pierre's very struck by the political language, political categories that Augustine uses to articulate biblical themes and that it's both obvious and pregnant. But Augustine, he clearly prefers the Republic and its sturdy moralism to the diffuse and lax imperial thing. On the other hand, he knows in God's providence, uh, the empire turned out to be the mold or the vehicle for the transmission of the gospel. So I think Augustine himself was a little torn in his judgment about Rome in its two, as it were, phases of political formation. There's a place, Paul, where either speaking in his own voice or perhaps riffing off of Machiavelli or somebody, Manat says something along the lines of, Christianity itself didn't really have much of a political teaching. It mainly applied certain key verses and concepts, and then it applied them to the existing debates about regimes and, and maybe forms that had come out of the Roman and classical experience. What did, what did you make of that? Yeah, here's this is something very characteristic of Menant, and as a Catholic and as a whatever I am, I'm not sure I agree with him, <laughs> but I'll raise it uh, here forever. He's been saying the church is a transpolitical institution. Of course, it lives in this world and it has all sorts of effects. And okay, but he says it's a transpolitical thing. And he firmly believes the church does not have an opinion on regimes or even forms. At most, it has an opinion on elemental justice. And then, you know, a few things like be nice to the poor. So Pierre just thinks the church is transpolitical at its best is apolitical or just a necessary reminder about elemental human decency and justice. So, you know, contemporary Catholic social thought and the social encyclicals, they fall on totally deaf ears, his ears, and he's never in print criticized the whole endeavor. But his silence, I think, is very telling. So I'm not saying that for him, Augustine is the definitive theological view of church and politics, but he thinks it's certainly an authoritative version and moment that's completely and conspicuously absent, you know, for the past 70 years in the Catholic Church. And uh, if he had to choose between the two, I'm pretty sure which of the two he'd choose. Now, of course, I just said this is, as it were, Menant versus contemporary Catholic social thought. As you all well know, there's political theorists and contemporary theologians who believe that the church is the 
one true polis. It's the model for any and all community, and the church should be the sovereign part of any community. And then at the extreme, you've got integralism or you've got ultramontane papalism. And so you have the odd thing of a conservative Catholics who pledge implicit fidelity to Pope Francis, a little odd. Uh, John Milbank is one of the main spokesmen of that political theology position. Bill Kavanaugh is another one. And then there's a historian at Stu Franciscanville. I think it's Andrew Willard Jones or Andrew Jones, Will Andrew Willard Jones. And he's done the history of the Middle Ages that's supposed to confirm the scriptural readings and then just kind of the uh, political theological theorizing of these other people like Kavanaugh and stuff like that. And they have a completely different reading of the Middle Ages. Instead of being a period of indeterminacy of form and regime, they think it was the beautiful unity of medieval Christianity as exemplified by cathedrals. Exhibit A they give for the perfect medieval unity is the kingdom of St. Louis, the king St. Louis, uh, Louis XI, I think. And so this Andrew Willard Jones, he's written a very long book where he's just tried to show you had this one place in the 11th, 12th century that was the embodiment of the political theological principles of the Middle Ages. And when I wrote on this, I kind of did a little bit of a dialogue between Menant and them, even though Menant didn't deal with this particular claim. You know, and again, the point is this Ciceronian moment is a moment of indetermination of political organization for centuries. That's what the Ciceronian moment is, indetermination both in principle, because there were too many principles, and in fact, because <laughs> there were too many authorities. And, you know, the theory was one thing, but the practice, as Canosa indicates, was different. You know, who are you going to obey? <laughs> so my creative dialogue, I said, Pierre just said, well, I'll grant you Louis Royaume if you just acknowledge that a single swallow doesn't make a medieval spring. For us Catholics or for, you know, a certain kind of politically minded Catholic, this Ciceronian moment has claim. What it does is it takes the Middle Ages off the table as a model for any contemporary political ideals or movements. That's a big deal right now. Yeah, don't don't get too enamored of the beauty of the cathedrals or Aquinas is, you know, Summa, for example. Yeah. So Pierre, he, he's a Catholic, he's a faithful Catholic, but he has a disagree relationship with the church when it comes to politics. He thinks it's congenitally incompetent in the politics insofar as it, you know, whether it be early 60s, Pachimentary, Sermater Magistra stuff, which, you know, just absorbed the 60s zeitgeist and said to be, you know, that's what Christ wants for us today to Pope Francis. He really thinks that the church has lost its focus in terms of politics. So I have very interesting conversations with my uh, moral theologian friends who are charged with teaching Catholic social thought. They really don't want to start the course off by saying, is this a legitimate development of Catholicism? So this points to uh, fundamental questions. We started with this problem of individuality. What happens when you begin to acknowledge, as Manan shows in, in Cicero, and Carl, I completely agree I also thought of, uh, pardon me, Paul, I also thought of Paul Cantor, his treatment of the Romans by way of Nietzsche and Shakespeare. Somehow, with the late Roman Republic, you can already tell 
a lot of private thoughts in truth and a lot of notions of human nature is much more individual than you think politically. And that just continuously undermines citizenship. You cannot even make an intellectual case anymore that you should dedicate yourself to justice, that the political regime does define you and your purposes. And that inaugurates human individuality, one catastrophe after another. Whatever was good about political freedom is first lost, but then after that, you end up with private individuals who are defined by their slavishness to uh, sometimes horrifyingly monstrous emperors, and then in, in a way maybe even worse, of course, the fall of the Roman Empire. Individuality has a horrible origin is what I'm getting at. What happens from Chichero onward is to a large extent the sort of stuff you would read about in tragedies. Titus Andronicus, you know, cannibal. Exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, okay. No, I, I, I can't Go ahead. Just for the record, we are of one mind here. <laughs> I don't get to claim this very often. And so individuality comes up with in, in this terrible way. It is undeniable. People are not that persuaded about politics. They will not sacrifice for it or live for it. They will not fulfill it. It does not fulfill them. But what else is there? And hence this indeterminacy, hence this problem. Paul, to get back to what you were saying about Pierre Manon, Aristotle, Augustine, Machiavelli. Augustine and Machiavelli seem like rivals and in a certain way parallel accounts of what's wrong with Rome. In some ways admirers, but definitively critics of Rome and therefore inaugurators of some other way. It seems natural that Manon would be alive to these things since he's trying to come up with a dynamic of Europe. Indeed, he's trying to come up with Europe without, of course, denying that Europe did not come up in an uh, idyllic Middle Age. You know, you look at the cathedral, what you see there is not exactly beauty. The full range of the cosmos is there, and that includes just, let's just say it, gargoyles. So, yeah. Exactly. To say the very least, it has to be a church of saints and sinners alike. And it's a very complicated business. But that cannot supply a new understanding of politics. It does not have the clarity of the principle of a political regime. And on the other hand, it does bring up in a wonderful way this thing that drives, as we have suggested again and again, Manon's investigation. A political regime means that one principle of justice orders everything else, and it is obvious above all in the ruling class. As he says from the beginning, how do you know what a city is like? Will you look to the rulers? And it does matter if it's this one guy or there's a small bunch of people or really a, a very large bunch of people ruling. That's what will make the difference. It supplies the individuality of the city or at any rate of the regime. And a political form is something else. Once you see the collapse of the Greek polis, once you see the catastrophe of Rome, you begin to ask yourself about this other matter the substratum, if you will, of politics, to, to use another one of these terms from Aristotle's physics. The political form is not the regime. We notice this, of course, as Europeans, for I can say that in my case, with Rome, which is supposed to be the eternal city. But what does Rome today have in common with, uh, I don't know, the Rome of the papal Middle Ages, since we mentioned Canossa and the conflict with the emperors? What does it have to do with the Rome of the empire, or for that matter, of the republic? These people do not worship the same gods, do not speak the same religion, and do not live and die for the same things. I think that is a very important to notice. But there is something to be said for the fact that cities are cities. There is a form there that is to some extent independent of the regime. 
that there is a substratum of politics and that that gets at the question of individuality because it deals with the question of private life. It is pre-political in that sense, but not necessarily apolitical. It is preparatory of politics at any rate. It limits and it makes demands on politics as well. It's both negative and positive. And that somehow is a better grasp of human nature since it allows for more variety. Hence, when he turns to Montesquieu, Manam points out, here's a man who thought that politics is the first thing that counts, but there are other things that count also. It's a very involved question. How can that be? How can politics be the thing that counts and allow for all these other things to count also? Can Montesquieu pull it off? He certainly says his epigons couldn't. We have human sciences or social sciences or whatever studies of the variety of human phenomena, and all of them presuppose things about the human phenomena that they neither know nor try to find out. We have lost what it made us human when we knew for sure what it means to be political. But still, he insists on this thing, which is not a political regime, but a political form, as we said, with city and empire and then the nation, and in a somewhat different form or partially the church. That is to say, because it is as strict as any city in its demands of allegiance, but as potentially universal as any empire. It's a very odd thing. And the nation would then be the counterpart of this church, since it, uh, again, is a compromise between the requirements of the city, a strict authority, never forgetting about who we are and who our enemies are. And on the other hand, some of the relaxation and vastness made possible by an empire where there is much more obedience and accordingly people get along in a very different way, i.e. the the requirements of politics are not quite so strict. There's not that much bellicosity, not so much aversion to strangers, to say the least. And so maybe we can look how from Augustine onward, how from through the Ceceronian moment, this problem came up that defined Europe. How can you organize politics when you do not have the organization of a strict regime, when you cannot answer for the particularity of each city in this crazy way in which the Greeks did it? If there was a Greek island, there were probably more than one city. There were probably a couple of cities there. However small you think those islands are you see on the map, or you can just go visiting nowadays, there used to be a bunch of cities there, and they did not feel the need to band together. In, In fact, they didn't think it was possible. So that, I think, is, uh, well, uh, I apologize for putting it crassly, but it is not misleading. This is exactly what life was like with these Greek police. But that seems almost unrecognizable to us now. We are stuck with this uh, European dynamic that Manan is talking about that somehow comes across to us as building on the ruins of Rome, which means there are so many things that were tied to Roman politics, in a way, would say gifts from Rome, but it were also tied to the fact that Rome destroyed everyone else's freedom. Everyone ended up a slave of Rome. And so the learning from Roman politics somehow required the catastrophe of the Roman Empire, since if there was some kind of political principle of the nation, this came from these invading barbarian nations. That's why there's a distinction between the French and Germans. It is not a part of Roman law or you know, Roman politics or whatever. So politics restarted in a somewhat different way. And of course, Mana also points out that this is already a problem for the Greek city or for Greeks, as he says, or Greece, that on the one hand, freedom and on the other hand, civilization, as he says, are principles that are utterly alien. Free are the savage barbarians like the various invaders of the Roman Empire that eventually brought it to its knees. Civilization, on the other hand, is like the Roman Empire. It has a great power, but it's perfectly compatible with, or in fact, it might be built on slavery. 
And yet these two principles somehow need to be brought together. We experience ourselves as some kind of uncertain mix of these two things. And we look at it in our, of course, in our modern way, certain of our representative government, but we can also look at it in the much more indeterminate and in a way more honest way of what he calls the Ciceronian moment. These two elements are very, very difficult to bring together and it never lasts very long. These are very important things, therefore, not just for Manan, but of course for us, since it might clear up some of the confusion we have in our own dedication to political principles, that is because we fear they might not last or we may have lost something crucial. Yeah, you got me, in addition to listening and agreeing, and Manan would like how you said what you just said, because he's always looking for pairs to play off of each other. So he, he loves pairs, and he, therefore he's very good about reading Pascal or Montaigne or Plato. Or, yeah, so I just want to say dialectics requires pairs. So I was very intrigued by that. But um, one thing you said really prompted, on one hand, in this book and in all of his writings, Manant is writing for himself. And on the other hand, he's writing for a readership or an audience. So it's very interesting how he combines those two interests. Now, he knows himself, he knows what he's been interested in for a long time. He also knows his audience is very variegated. You know, you've got the hyper-democrats, those who think that democracy is the sole legitimate human regime, and that the solution to all the problems of democracy is more democracy. So he's aware of that. He knows the people who define the nation by the Holocaust. So he knows his European audience, and we Romanians and Americans, we can kind of make the appropriate translation to our version of these audiences who need, you know, somehow or another to broaden their horizons, to dampen their dogmatism, and to get them to be interested in this broader sweep of things. Manant, he begins this book sharing something with his reader of any sort, and he shares with them a, a desire for self-knowledge. Now, I do think that today the desire for self-knowledge is very much on the wane, and it probably was never widely, widely spread, <laughs> but you used to have native curiosity and young people who wanted to understand their country, and then they learn about you know, other countries. You know, today, you know, in America, we just got an awful lot of dogmatists, unfortunately, but he tries. So he just says, uh, all of us agree that we're modern men and women, and then he just points to some facts that give rise to conundrum perplexities that makes what modern is a question. And that's how he starts The City of Man. That's how he starts this book. He just problematizes this shared designation of us. We're all modern people. And yet we find it very hard to define it because, you know, it gets pluralized into architecture and religion and politics and morals and and every time we think that the modern adventure has come to an end, well, in 50 years, we get another modern revolution that repudiates the previous one. So modernity, our cherished self-designation, it's an elusive target. Now, like any good philosopher, any good rhetorician, he starts with the common, with the accessible, and then shows it's more problematic than we tend to think. So that's self-knowledge. And I think you'll begin to see where I'm going and kind of smile. Modernity started with a great project about conquering the world, you know, a perpetual republic, 
mastery and possession of nature. So modernity started with a huge ambition of collective human enterprise and powers. And then he looks around and says, have you noticed how impotent, lacking in confidence and stuck in a rut we are today in Europe? And so the next question he raises is, how have we fallen so far from our predecessors, our forefathers? And I have to say, so the first one, self-knowledge, that's Socrates. The second one is he's looking at man, the agent. And now, you know, that is undertaken by philosophers. So he's bringing to bear Socrates, and I'm going to say Aristotle, without naming them or just tacitly using their categories to present himself and to frame his audience. And that immediately puts them in a groove where they can look back to the polis, for example, and then he'll do something similar with Christianity too. He'll do something similar with, you know, how we're still Romans. So he has this knack for bringing the categories of the topics he wants to talk about into the present in a kind of discreet way, but that kind of reorients his audience, but orients his investigation from then on. I mean, I'm just struck by in the introduction, this this mention of kind of a depoliticized situation, particularly in Europe, where kind of you know this one line that I quoted somewhere, where you know a rule comes from somewhere, we don't really know where it's coming from, um, and this idea of you know stasis of of the dynamism somehow has died out. I mean, other observations from Monat give you a picture of a modernity that again, is seeking kind of the stability of kind of the Habesian or Lockean maxims that, for example, in the American case, give us a definite written constitution that's totally authoritative. And in Tocqueville's formulation, that allows modernity to kind of go crazy <laughs> in, the, in the economic sphere quite creatively and often beneficially with some creative destruction there as well. And both Manat and Tocqueville would agree, but also there's a lot of kind of unhealthful, bad dynamism, right? The kind of, you know, oh, there's a new theory of what's authoritative every five months. And, you know, yesterday Locke was good enough, but now we need Marx and now we need this new version of Marx. And now we need all that dynamism makes the 20th century, the 19th century, a little exhausting to think about but there's something troubling about the lack of dynamism. We still got the economic dynamism in a way. I mean, it's real, but it's there's a feeling in the last 20, 30 years of things just sort of being stuck in a rut. And I guess that has some parallel to the Ciceronian moment, but I don't know. I'm just sort of thinking aloud here. The, I'm, I'm not sure where Monat's going with this other than to sort of scratch our itch that we're dissatisfied with this lack of dynamism. I mean, He's very faithful to the classical political philosophy that loves the regime and the living up to the regime, but he reminds us that it came out of a dynamism. It descended into the dynamism when it declined and that it was never fully satisfactory. I'll stop there. Yeah, Pierre, he thinks that contemporary Europeans, and he means by that primarily Western Europeans and not so much Americans, he just thinks Human beings need political form, political regime to orient themselves in the world in both thought and action. And yet in Europe, the historical 
points plan to repair or points of reference, uh, political form of the nation and the regime being the representative regime. Those are weakened. They're discredited from different quarters and people say that they should be subordinate to and eventually they'll be merged into the European Union, but that itself is a non-political form, non-regime monstrosity. So he has great sympathy for contemporary Europeans having lost their minds or being insane because the natural and the historical frames of reference, who we are, what we have in common, what's to the left, what's to the right, uh, those are not firm and they're beleaguered and they're delegitimized. And then on top of that, in Europe, you have contemporary humanitarianism that Merkel says, let them all in, or Bond says, no, we're not. Today, what I'm struck by in America is a Democratic Party used to be open borders and multicultural, but the past couple of years, on top of that, they put critical race theory, but still critical race theory fundamentally delegitimizes America. Open borders further erodes it. Citizenship for them means nothing. So America, comparable to Europe, is being assaulted in terms of our natural and our historical, our constitutional points of orientation. I think maybe that's in a nutshell the problem. And then I'll just add one thing. Pierre says next to nothing about technology. And I was talking with our friend Tom Harmon recently. Uh, Pierce says next to nothing about technology. And clearly that's a major structural element and dynamism you know, in our situation. Frankly, about the only thing I've read that he ever said about technology, he said, Heidegger said that our fate is technology as opposed to the modern project. He said, Heidegger's wrong. <laughs> so I think he appears just so focused on politics and not in that narrow sense, but in this deep, regime form, human type sense, again, he's focused. So he's not going to bring in, you know, has our technology got the upper hand such that Facebook itself acknowledges they've created a monster that they can't control. And I think most, many of us, you know, have that fear or maybe even that sense that the, the technology is precisely that dynamism that is mastering us. That's a very good observation. You know, there is a conversation between Pierre Manon and Peter Thiel, one of the few American technologists who has a serious intellectual education and concerns, and they disagree on the, precisely this matter. Manon insists that we are and will stay political, we're just stuck with it, whereas Thiel insists that all political alternatives have expired. We just apparently can't do anything anymore in that sense, and so we should look to technology instead. I do think that that is part of Manon's insistence that what he's trying to do is a version of ancient political science, that it is some adaptation of Aristotle that stays true to Aristotle's concern with human action. Yeah, I do have to say underneath regime form and soul type, the foundational commitment of Pierre is that man is a political animal, and that's expressed in shared speech and collaborative deeds. And if you ever wanted to fundamentally challenge or critique Pierre, that would be the level at which you'd have to do it. A denial that man is a political animal understood as the Logos animal and the putting deeds and speeches together with others to fulfill his nature. And I, I have to say, I've seen no real evidence that that's not true. 
And I've seen a lot of evidence that points to it by people who try to live and pretend that it's not true. So there's another way of saying this, Paul, that the only way in which a Thiel could be right about technology, it, there's got to be a prior agreement, which even though it's anti-political, is a political agreement. It's an aspect of political speech to say we are fundamentally individuals. It feels to me that that's the predicate for you know our devices taking over. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I think I'd maybe say, again, now I'm speaking for Pierre, not reporting Pierre, but I do think Pierre would point out that technology was born and raised in a certain civilization and in certain regimes, and so that its conditions of origin were pre and in some sense extra technological. Then the question would be, you know, do those conditions of origination and development, do they still obtain? Well, Teal, he does business here. I don't think he does business in China or, you know, it still seems to me that there is very much a national mark that affects technological development and technological things. And so that would be one. But the second one is, can you be a full human being without being a citizen? And I would put it that directly. And I would quote uh, Wordsworth, breeds their man, the soul so dead, who never to himself has said, this is my own, my native land, whose heart is not within him burned, his home, his footstep he has turned. Like Sam Huntington, I actually look at the cosmopolitan souls and I find them sadly wanting and a lot more glitter than solid. I know we're probably running out of time here. Is there anything about the book as a whole you'd like to kind of sum up for us or give the introductory reader a, a guide for? Well, just to indicate something of the care with which it was composed and written, the introduction begins with us and the introduction ends with us in Europe, talking about the bifurcation and the impetization of political speech and political action in Europe. So it, it opens with us as moderns and then us as contemporary moderns in Europe. And our speech is hypocritical, it's political correctness, it's faked proposals of actions that we know we're never going to commit. And then we just confuse expansion of rights with common action. So it begins with that, and then it ends with kind of the European history of discovering and then relating to the universal, which is humanity. And he shows that modern European history has had three forms of the universal, which is humanity. The first two brought humanity into a mix with something else, Christianity and then the nation. But he says now, Humanity is isolated and splendid, and it's totally paralyzing us, uh, and we've become moralistic in our speech and our deeds. So I just, the book itself kind of ends where it began, and in between, we hypocritical speaking Europeans, we bear humanitarian Europeans, we're reminded of when our forebears acted and discussed in ways that were infinitely more human than what we do in our censorious, hypocritical day. Yeah, I think that's the fundamental thing. Mona is concerned throughout with the odd disjunction of our speeches and our deeds. To have any kind of dynamism, there must be some agreement between speeches and deeds. 
as we say, our political life has to open us up to the world and to considerations even of a philosophical, not merely of a political character. We have to understand what intrinsically connects speeches and deeds together and why they never quite correspond. That, you could say, is the pattern on which he fashions this exploration of Western politics and philosophy or the question of individuality. And he seems to be trying to show that individuality is a very difficult achievement and to make a political home for it is perhaps even more difficult than to recognize how we are strangely split between deeds and speeches in the first place. Now, this of his books is, I think, the closest to an entire education, or rather the guide to an entire education, which in a sense is obvious since it is the fruit of a very long study, of a very long education of himself. But as we have said, so many subjects are treated, and yet they are put together in a coherent way, and moreover in a movement. This is a book that keeps going and keeps going. And as Paul has said, it ends up in a way where it starts. But at any rate, going through it, I thought that by the end of it, my grasp of our lack of confidence and our inability to put speeches and deeds together is less confusing than it was before I started reading this book. And I think anybody can look forward to that, to learning why it is that we are in this mess in this first place and how we would think about any of these issues and then try to put them together to understand ourselves. Going through it again now for the podcast, the thing that struck me most was the parallels I've tried to suggest between the collapse of Rome and our own collapse I don't mean to say because we are falling apart politically or something of that character. I don't mind people who talk about our collapses like Rome's, but I don't indulge it myself. What I mean is with respect to his concerns of what political forms are even possible for us. What does it mean to be stuck between the catastrophic versions of the, the city of man and the city of God, so to speak? What it means to be in a situation where no speech is credible and no action is possible, something like that. Yeah, just to use his own terminology, any positive steps forward are going to require the collaboration of the one, the few, and the many. And as I look here in America, it does seem to me that the many is stirring. And then some of the few, like Carl, you know, are helping to educate and to guide that. And then we did have one one recently, and he, to use Paul's, he was a very imperfect vessel. So one could hope that if you're going to have a regime, it's got to bring together one, few, and many. And so I think we need a good one in 2024 or 2028 uh, here in America. And since I've mentioning America, assuming most people listening will be from America. I said that Menon ends the book on the contemporary scene of being thoroughly democratic in the name of humanity that's not mediated or connected with anything else. For him, this is in, in 2010, he meant humanity as a whole and then that radical individual. Here in America since then, our notion of humanitarianism it still has radical individualism. It still has humanity as a whole, although humanity is cut off from all previous humanities and just eschews them and doesn't want to learn anything from them. But between the individual and all of humanity today, we do have multiculturalism. So that was a major articulation of 
contemporary humanitarianism that occurred here in America. And then what critical race theory has added is multiculturalism says evil or wicked cultures and then innocent ones. So that's how I would update his notice that today in Europe we're hyper democratic and we're hyper humanitarian. I do think our elites are humanitarian in the way I just spelled out. And yet they say everything they do is in the name of democracy, but we all know that they're defining democracy to suit them and as they go along. Can I, can I just add one kind of final thought on the book? I'll just report that for myself, reading this book back in 2014 when it came out, this book and kind of coming to terms with Dante's Divine Comedy, I would say those are the two books that have sort of most driven me forward in trying to connect the different parts of the, of the Western story, America, Rome, the polis. A superficial way would be saying that this book inspired me to think about Rome. And I actually had an old postmodern conservative piece where I, called Roman Meanderings where I talked about that. But there's this, this is getting maybe to the intangible parts of this book or the intangible power of this book. It just, it, just to self-report, it really moved me to kind of look into some of these connections more, more deeply. So just a report. Well, hopefully it will do the same for our readers. I hope that, Paul, you have given us enough clarity about the structure. And we have also shown beyond that how many puzzles there are and how these things connect to our trouble now, partly because we have inherited it, partly because in certain ways we are reliving it. And hopefully readers will turn to this book and to Mana more broadly to investigate what it means to put speech and action together. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me. We have done now two podcasts on this very interesting thinker, a daring man, partly because he is so humble as to present himself always as a sort of student of Aristotle. And of course, you know, in a way, there's nothing humble about being a student of Aristotle. It's not, <laughs> not many can achieve that, but it's not a usual boast with us. And I discovered Manon when I first went to college in political science, and it's maybe the only good thing I found in a school of political science that I can't, couldn't have trust to find in another place. And I would say even now, it's worth anything you have to put up with in uh, academia. But since the books are out there and we can do some introductory conversations, maybe people can learn and educate themselves in this way and see what it means for a man who has great depth of thought, also have a great humanity to wish to help others and not put up with any of the ugliness of academia. So it's a win-win. All right. All the best, Carl, Paul. Until next time. Until later. A bientôt.